Romans chapter 6, begin this morning. And in Romans chapter 6, we're talking about the doctrine of just, or, uh, sanctification in this chapter. Believers in Jesus Christ have been sanctified. They have been set apart, set apart from sin and set apart to God. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation have been made new, have been baptized into the body of Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul spent considerable time already in this letter talking about sin, um, talking about mankind living just the opposite of what we're seeing here in Romans chapter 6. He lives for himself, he rejects God, he ignores even the most basic truths about God's creation, things that are right in front of him, right in front of his eyes, and instead he gives glory to the creation itself, worships the creation rather than God himself. Mankind's personal problem with sin in their life is really the greatest issue that the world has ever faced and will ever face. His problem with sin, his enslavement to it, is what keeps him from God, and it affects every single person from the beginning of time until now. We look around us today, and we see issues that worry us, issues that concern us. These things seem overwhelming to us. Wars, terrorist attacks, immorality, murder, drug use, the list goes on and on and on. We can all think of examples of these things, and these things are all serious problems. But really, these things are a byproduct of the true problem, and the true problem is the sin of rejecting God. It's mankind rejecting the Creator. Every single one of those things can be boiled down to what Paul is talking about back in chapter 1, man worshiping the creation rather than God himself, rejecting God in favor of himself or something else. And that's what it really boils down to. Well, now, as Paul continued through the letter, we saw that in the first chapters, but He went from talking about the sin problem of mankind in those first chapters to talking about the process of justification that God has provided for mankind through his Son. And that really took us through the second half of chapter 3 through chapter 5. God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to earth to be the propitiation for sin, to satisfy the righteous judgment of God and to provide a way for men and women to escape God's judgment by believing in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ came and died for the sins, came and died uh, for your sins, for my sins. It's only through believing in the work that he accomplished that a person can be justified. So again, that was in chapters 3 through 5. Now we come to chapter 6. And Paul turns to deal with us, to those who have been justified, to those who have already gone through the process of justification. Now that we are justified, what does that mean for us? What now? Well, in chapter 6, the first thing he does is turn back to a discussion on sin once again. But this time, it's not a discussion on the hopelessness of sin, It's a discussion on our freedom, our freedom from sin. I said before that sanctification is being set apart from sin, and we talked before about how there's really three different aspects of our sanctification. There's the aspect where we are set apart from sin's penalty, 
And that's what occurred when we were justified. We were set free from the penalty of sin. There's also an aspect where we are set apart from its power, which we've been seeing through this chapter. That also occurred when we were justified, but we'll see as we go through here today that there is a continuing, there's an ongoing aspect of that as well. But the third aspect, and the third aspect is that someday we will be set free from its very presence. And when we are in glory with the Lord and our bodies of sin have been transformed into glorified bodies, we will be free from the very presence of sin. All of those aspects are true of the believer. All believers experience all three of those. There's not any believer that goes through one or two of them and doesn't experience the third one. Every believer will experience all of those aspects of sanctification. It's just a matter of timing of when those things occur. Now, here in Romans chapter 6, it's the power of sin that uh, Paul is primarily dealing with here. How or what power does sin have over the believer, if any? Now that we have been justified, had, had sin's penalty wiped clean from our account, credited with the very righteousness of God, what do we have to do with sin? What kind of life are we to live as believers with regard to sin? In this chapter, Paul asks two questions that he then goes on to answer. And these two questions really define the contents of the chapter. In the first 14 verses, which we looked at over the last two weeks, we just finished answering the first question that Paul had anticipated people asking from what he'd said previously. If grace abounds when we sin, then should we continue in sin so that grace increases? Remember, the very idea of this comes from chapter 5, the very end of the, uh, of the chapter, where he said in verse 1, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Transgression increased, and God's grace abounded all the more. God's grace was more than sufficient to cover every sin. Therefore, the natural question would be, shouldn't we keep sinning? so that grace keeps coming? From a perverse sort of standpoint, there's a certain logic to the question. You can see why people might ask that. If grace is good and sin is bad, and if grace increases when sin increases, then can we conclude that it's good to have more sin so that there's more grace? Right? Doesn't that make sense? Well, what's Paul's answer? May it never be. Absolutely not. Why? Why isn't it good? Because he goes on in verse 2 and says, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? The reason is because we died to sin. Now from verses 3 through 14, he explained how this works. The believer has died with Christ. He has died to sin. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when we believed, we were baptized. We were immersed into the death of Christ. We are now identified with him in not only his death, but also in his burial and in his resurrection. What does that mean? It means that the power that sin had over us previously has been broken. It no longer has a hold on us. Before we were saved, and we, as we talked about back in those first chapters of the, of the letter, we were slaves to sin. We were enslaved to it. We wanted nothing to do with God, and God had handed us over to our sins. 
But now that we have believed, now that we have been justified, we died to that sin, which killed its power, it killed its mastery over us. But it didn't just stop there. Because we also saw that having died with him and died to sin, we have now been raised to walk in newness of life. We are now alive to God. And we are to consider ourselves, think of ourselves this way every day, dead to sin and alive to God. In verse 14, he ended that section by saying, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Sin is not our master because we are no longer under law but under grace, he says there. While the law could reveal to us what God's will was, it could not enable us to follow it. We were left on our own and we failed miserably for those that were under the law. But being under grace, we are now alive to God. And we are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit who directs us as to how we should walk as well as enabling us to do so, to follow the commands of God, to follow the will of God. We understand an enabling influence when it comes to laws, right? You think of, think of a law that has no power and you think of an enabling influence. And we understand the concept of enabling influences. What happens if there aren't any police around? But there's laws around. But there are still speed limits, there's still stop signs, but there's no police around. Do people tend to obey those? I know people obey the stop signs, people obey the traffic signs all the time, right? No, we see that every day, right? People speed right down the street, right past the speed limit sign, right? It says 35, and they're obviously not going 35. How much faster do they go than the, spot, than the sign says? Or when they come to a stop sign or a red light, and they just roll right through it? But what happens when you're driving down the road and there's a patrol car sitting right there? You come up on the stop sign and there's a police car that's, that's in the intersection right there. Then we have a tendency to stop completely at that sign, don't we? You're driving down the road and it says 35 and there's a patrol car sitting there. You're going 35 or 34, right? Why? Because the police officer is going to enforce or we could say enable that law. Being under grace is more than just posted laws. It lives in us. It gives us the power to live according to God's righteousness through the change that comes about through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. The point is, having believed and been justified, broken through that wall where we stand in peace with God that we've talked about, the believer now lives a different life now lives a life for God and apart from sin, no longer continuing in a life of sin. Remember, we said before, what sanctification is what? Being set apart from sin and set apart for God. This is living that same truth. This is living a sanctified life. Now, having said this, gone through that first question, we come now to verse 15 where we see the next question that comes up, and it's a question that arises based again upon living under grace and not under law. He says in verse 15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Having made the statement about not being under 
law, but under grace. The logical flow of this would be if, if we are no longer under laws, we're no longer under commands, right? We don't, we don't have to follow letters, and therefore, are we able to do whatever we want? It means that it's okay to sin, right? If I don't have to follow those commands, I'm not under those commands anymore, I can do whatever I want. That means that, oh, I'm not under the law anymore, therefore, it must be okay for me to sin. This sin, that sin, it doesn't matter because I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. And the grace of God has taken care of all my sins. Have you ever heard that argument before? Have you heard people make that argument about being under grace? Unfortunately, it's an argument that does come up from time to time. I've told you before, the sins of my youth, when I was... When I was very young, and I don't remember how old I was, but I was very young. I'll use that excuse. But I witnessed to a friend of mine, and I told him that. The nice thing about being saved is that you can, you can be saved, and you can go to heaven, and then you can keep doing whatever you want to do. I, told, I actually told a friend of mine that. You can sin all you want. That's the cool thing about it. That's what people think. And that's a common argument, actually, against the grace of God. People have a problem sometimes with talking about the grace of God because that's their argument. Because they say that's what people believe. They say if you talk about grace and you don't talk about a works-based salvation, then you're talking about being able to do anything you want to do. Whenever you tell people that, that they can't earn their salvation, that it is completely a gift from God, they immediately take it to that other extreme and accuse people that believe in grace of of teaching lawlessness, that a believer can live a life of sin and obey, um, and not have to obey God in any way. But is that what Paul is talking about here? Is that what Scripture is teaching? Not at all. That's certainly not what Paul has been teaching through the first half of this chapter, and we'll see here that that's not what he's teaching in the second half of the chapter either. This is similar to the question. This question that he asks here is very similar to the question in verse 1, but it's not exactly the same question. Before, he was asking if it's all right for a believer to continue in a life of sin so that grace may increase. To not have a change in life from what you were before you were saved. But here, the form of the word for sin is different. Back up in verse 1, he was using the present tense, which would give the idea that this is a habitual practice. This is living in sin. That's what verse 1 was talking about. But here he's using an aorist tense, which is indicating uh, acts of sin, not habitual like before, but these would be isolated acts. One commentator referred to, to them as possibly planned acts, a believer making room for the occasional sin in their life. The idea is, now that I have been freed and I am no longer under the law, is it all right to go ahead and take liberties every now and then? To go ahead and live righteously most of the time, but still hang on to a habitual or, a, or an occasional sin. Puritan writers made mention of what they would sometimes call people's bosom sins. Sins that a person had that was difficult to let go of, right? And we've talked about this in the past. Things that, you know, something that may be really hard for me to let go of, but... but might be really easy for you not to do, and vice versa. You might have something in your life that you think, oh, that's something I really struggle with, and I think, that makes no difference to me. Why would I even want to do that? But mo most sins uh, we look at, and we think how repulsive they are, but then there's that, that one that maybe keeps creeping up that, 
that we allow to take hold, and maybe even we make allowances for it. Maybe we even schedule time for it, invite it into our lives at times. Now, whether a bosom sin is really a thing or not, but it's that type of sin, along with any other isolated acts, that are really what Paul has in view here. Just these occasional, once-in-a-while type of sins. Are those okay? What Paul is doing here is narrowing the scope between his two questions. Before it was, don't live a life of sin. A believer will live differently than he did before. He will no longer live with sin as being the pattern of his life. Well, maybe we sit back and we say, well, I don't live in sin every day. I don't live with sin as the pattern of my life. I'm much better than I used to be. I've cut out 90% of the sins in my life. Surely 90% is good enough, right? Shouldn't I be happy with 90%? Because that's a lot of sin. No, it's not good enough. What's Paul's response to this question even? May it never be. The exact same response he had before. Absolutely not. God forbid. It's not all right for a believer to sin even on occasion. It's repulsive to think that it would be all right. Our newfound freedom in Christ does not give us freedom to sin. Sin isn't a popular subject these days. People don't like talking about sin. We shy away from talking about it because we don't want to offend people. We don't want to upset people. There's even a very real sense in the world today where telling people that they're in sin is seen as intolerant and hateful. And that can affect the way that we as believers present the gospel. There are a lot of gospel presentations and presenters out there that don't start where we need to start. And that's with the discussion of sin, how morally corrupt a sinner really is. They present the gospel by telling people how God can make their life better, how he loves them and wants them to live with him forever. He has a plan for them, and then it becomes an emotional experience that doesn't really have much substance to it. I remember when I was at a Christian concert back in my college days, right? What do they have at Christian concerts? I don't know if they still do this or not. What do they have at Christian concerts a lot of times? They have that altar call at the end, right? Calling people up. The music's playing. Everybody's wrapped up in it. Everybody's singing along. And then they have an altar call at the end. And it was an extremely emotional setting to seeing all these people that are just getting up and making their way up to the front of the stage. But when you stopped and thought about it and you actually listened to what they were saying from the stage, you realize there's very little substance to what they're actually calling these people to. The unbeliever first needs to hear that God is repulsed by their sin, that they have offended the only living God by their sin, by what they're doing in their life. How did Paul start this whole discussion in the book of Romans? 118, talking about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. That's how he started. That was his first verse in talking about the gospel. Then spending two and a half chapters talking about the unrighteousness, the ungodliness, the condemnation, the sin that goes on in the world. That's where it all begins because that is the problem. The concept of sin is disappearing today. People think that they should be accepted just as they are, and if God wants them, he's going to take, have to take them as they are. And if that's what they think, then they don't understand God. 
And the person who presents the gospel in that way doesn't really understand him very well either. An unbeliever is controlled by their sin, whether they acknowledge that or not. Sin is their master. They live to disobey God, to oppose Him. That is the realm of which they are part of and how they live their life. And they indulge in their sins freely. And they have no choice in that because they're enslaved to that. But what about the believer? Right? That's the unbeliever. What about the believer? The believer has had sin taken care of in his life, has been justified from their sin. What was the reason not to live a life of sin? Because we've died to sin, right? And as we go through these following verses, we'll see that the reason is pretty much the same here as before. Why we shouldn't even sin on occasion. Why we shouldn't look at individual sins and think, well, that's not really a big deal. I'm I'm saved by grace. I have grace in my life. So that wasn't a big deal. The reason's the same, because we have died to sin. We are being presented here with a very basic lesson on the believer and sin. It's important to understand this because it affects the way that we live our lives and it affects our sanctification because sin affects our walk and it affects our maturity. As we understand that and we live our lives by that, we turn from sin, we walk by the Spirit of God, our sanctification progresses and we mature as we should as believers. That's why what Paul presents here is so important for us to understand, because it does affect the way that we live. We need to live our lives with the understanding of just what has changed in our lives. As we became justified and dwelt by the Holy Spirit and baptized into the body of Christ. And that includes having the right concept of what our association with sin ought to be now that we are saved. I think we spend a lot of time thinking about how we'll live for eternity. We spend a lot of time thinking about reading our Bibles, making church a priority, and we think about those things, and I'm not saying it's wrong to think about those things. We do think about those things, and it's great that we think about those things because they're all important. But I think where we fail is, is in acknowledging the sin in our life, recognizing these areas for what they are and living in a way that we deal with them as we should. We don't do that properly. Understanding that we do not have to commit sins, then we are under absolutely no obligation to them and that we should be doing all that we can to distance ourselves from sin and removing the very things that might tempt us to do them in our lives. Instead, I think many believers tend to, uh, way too often, try to find out where that line is quote-unquote line is. What's that line that I can walk right up to that if I cross it, I'm in sin, but if I don't cross it, I'm okay? We, we look at that line and we say, I can go to here and I'm all right. Is that what our attitude should be? Trying to find that line that we shouldn't cross? That should never be our attitude. If we know where that line is and we say, you know what, that line is over there, that's the line that if I cross that, I would be in sin, then my attitude should be, I'm going over here. I'm not walking right up to that line and trying to say, oh, if I cross it, I'm in sin. My attitude should be 180 degrees. I know where that line is. I'm, putting, I'm removing myself from that situation. 
putting that line as far away as I can in my rearview mirror. It is never okay for the believer to sin. Now we come to verse 16, and Paul goes on to explain why is it not okay. Verse 16 says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Paul here begins a discussion that will carry on really through the rest of the chapter, the concept of slavery, of a slave who serves a master. This is a concept that we don't fully understand today because we don't have slaves. Servants, the the word servant doesn't really do it justice. Employee is like the closest thing that we have. That doesn't really do it justice. Last week I brought up an analogy of switching jobs, right? Going from one job to another job. And, and, And when you switch jobs, it would be silly for me to go back to my old boss and say, well, I can... You know, can I do something for you? Or, or do you, doing work for him and, and neglecting the work for the person that I actually work for. That's an analogy that we can relate to because that's something that we know. We all have had a boss at one point, whether we do now or not in our lives. But we all at least have worked for someone probably in our lives, and we understand that employee-employer relationship. But that analogy fits this to a point, but it doesn't really go far enough to what Paul is actually talking about here. There's even more at stake with what Paul is presenting. A slave in Paul's day was someone who served their master 24-7. They didn't get time off. They didn't have a PTO bank. They didn't have a concept of after hours and during hours or a work-life balance. There was no work-life balance. None of that applied. The only rights that they had were those that their master chose to give them. They did not belong to themselves. They only lived to serve their master. I know some people might have jobs where they feel like this is the case, but we all have to admit that's not really the situation that we live in or that we work in. So when Paul starts talking here about slavery, we're on a whole new level. A slave is totally under the dominion and the rule of their master, and yet Paul is talking here about a person who is presenting themselves to a master. And he talks about one of two masters here. The question is, how can there be two masters? And that's really the point. There can't be. There can't be two masters. I mean, when I talk about a job situation, right, I could have a job, a primary job, and I could have a secondary job, and I can say, well, I'm now I'm doing a project for one boss and a project for another boss, but that's not what the slave relationship was like. Maybe a better way to say it is the two masters here that he's talking about cannot both be served at the same time, but a person's actions show who it is that they are truly obeying, and the master they obey, that is their true master. In a master-slave relationship, you either belong here or there. There is no option of switching from one to the other at will. You aren't free to go running back and forth from one master to the other based on what you want. What does he say here? He says, when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Your conduct reveals who you serve. Whom do you obey? You can tell whose slave I am by which master I am obeying. Now, it's not like these are two masters that are mostly on the same page and that they're just minor differences in what you are to do now, right? I mean, if I look back at my job situation, the job I had before, I work in IT. 
The employer I had before, I worked in IT. The employer I work with now, I work in IT. It's really the same work that I'm doing, right, for both jobs. If I told you about a project or I told someone about a project that I'm working on, you could say, well, that would fit either job, right? That, that doesn't really say where you're working or who you're working for. It's the same thing, right? But here, these two masters are not the same. They are not the same at all. They, they are fierce. There's fierce animosity towards one another, and they are complete and total opposites that he's talking about here. We can put any thought out of our minds that these two masters that Paul is talking about here can work together, even at times. Or that we can please one by submitting to the other or find some kind of harmonious middle ground that will satisfy them both. That's sometimes what believers look to do, right? Well, I can find this spot in the middle that I'm not really... I can still indulge over here, but I'm still faithful to God 90% of the time. What the two want to accomplish are diametrically opposed to one another. The first master is sin, and slavery to sin results in death. This is the life of the unbeliever. They are in slavery to sin, and there is only one potential outcome to that life of slavery, and that's death. Now, those who are enslaved to sin usually don't view themselves as slaves. Have you ever noticed that? You talk to someone that's an unbeliever and say, oh, you're enslaved to sin. No, I'm not. I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I want. They think that they're free and able to obey their only wishes and desires, right? What they want to do without any master. But that's an illusion. That is a false sense of freedom that the unbeliever has. That they don't realize is that by living that way, they are really slaves of that life to which they live, and they are slaves to the disobedience of God, or being disobedient to God. An unbeliever talking about the freedom that they have is kind of like talking about hearing convicts in prison talk about freedom that they have. Two guys in prison talking about in gen pop, right? We call it gen pop. No, I don't, I'm kidding. I don't know what we call it. General population in prison. Um, I've, I've seen movies. I've seen movies that talk about that. I don't know. That's just a word that popped into my head. Anyway, but two guys in general population in prison talking about how much freedom they have over the guy that's in solitary confinement. Right? Oh, he can't do anything. We can do all these things. It's an illusion, isn't it? Because they're in prison, right? They're not really free themselves. Neither one can leave their situation. They can only find maybe a differing degree within their confinement to their master, which in that case is the prison system itself. Unbelievers, what they have freedom from is God. That is really all that they're truly free from. They are free from having any participation in his righteousness, in his holiness. But this kind of freedom really is called something else. It's called death. Total and eternal separation from God. That's how they live. That's what defines the life of the unbeliever. And sin is what characterizes that life. And that's who's uh, the master over their lives. But now we see the other master. And the other master he presents here is obedience resulting in righteousness. A person is either a slave of sin, which results in death, or a slave of obedience, he says here, which results in righteousness. Now, if you're like me, that sounds kind of odd, 
you would expect Paul to say, well, they're slaves of righteousness, or maybe even they're slaves of God. But instead, he uses the term slaves of obedience. Provides us with an interesting contrast here between the two masters, sin or obedience, because these present the walk of each person, the life of each person. We've asked the question before, what is sin? It is a failure to live up to God's standard of righteousness. Whenever we don't hit that mark of God's righteousness, that's sin. In essence, it is man being disobedient to God, not being able to live up to God's righteousness. So there are only two options here. And we hear that all the time, right? Two kinds of people. We always make those arguments. There's two kinds of people. And that's what we're seeing here. There's two kinds of people, two options. The emphasis is on the actions of a person's life. On the one hand, you are either enslaved to the actions of sin, or on the other, you are living the life of someone who is under grace, and that is a life characterized by the action of obedience. Believers have been enslaved to obedience. And slavery to obedience leads to righteousness and right living, and that's really what Paul is getting at here. It goes back to what we've said before. Becoming saved is not just fire insurance. It isn't simply a way that we can be safe. It's not being saved just for the sake of being saved itself. It's being saved into a new life and living in a way that is different from the life that we lived before. Obedience is our master. We are enslaved to it. Having died with Christ and raised up to newness of life with Him, believers have been given over to a life of obedience. So having that picture in mind of a believer being enslaved to obedience, now ask the question, are we free to sin? Absolutely not. The pattern of our life is to be obedient to God. We aren't free to sin, either continually or even to commit individual acts of sin. That is not something that a believer should even be looking to dabble in. You note at the end of the verse, what is the result of obedience? Obedience results in righteousness. Again, maybe not what we would expect Paul to say. Sin resulted in death. We would think that this would result in what? Life, right? Opposite of death in our minds is life. But that's not what he says. So don't misunderstand. There is life. There is eternal life. We talked about that last week. The believer definitely has eternal life. But what Paul is getting across here is is what results right now, what results for us today. The one who is justified, who is made new in Christ, there is transformed godly living. It results in the way that we now live, not simply that we are alive, but how we are alive. By being obedient to God, it results in righteousness. This is right living, living our lives for God. Once again, this is part of sanctification. This is part of that process. A believer is one who is enslaved to obedience and lives a life characterized by righteousness, not by sin. So here we have the two opposing masters. But now, verse 17, we see the process the believer has gone through in going from one master to the other. And you note how verse 17 starts. 
with that little connecting word, but. So there's a contrast here. There are two masters. A person either serves one or the other, but this is what the believer does. But thanks be to God. Now stop right there for a second. Don't miss this. Notice to whom Paul says to thank here. God, right? Thanks be to God. Why? Because God is the one who has initiated all that we are now in Christ. This is, the, this is very reminiscent of another passage that we've looked at several times in our study through Romans, right? Ephesians chapter 2, those first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Right? In that section, we read that we're dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses and sins. We indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We walked according to the course of this world. We're by nature children of wrath. But then verse 4, he says, But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We were sinners. God sent his Son to die for our sins. We rejected God at every turn, but God made us alive. Again, Paul hasn't yet gotten to all the inner workings of all that God did just yet. We're mostly still here focused for now on our responsibilities in this. But we get a glimpse here that this isn't on us. Paul's not saying, give yourself a pat on the back for choosing the gospel. Give yourself a hand for choosing God. No, he says, thanks be to God. It is God's work of salvation in us. Now, what are we thanking him for? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. You were slaves of sin, he says, past tense. You once were, but you aren't that anymore. This is the condition of all mankind, everyone, from the time that they are born. They are slaves of sin. We all started out under the master of sin. There isn't anyone who can claim otherwise. No one is accepted from this. The only question is, are you now enslaved to sin, or were you enslaved to sin? A believer was a slave of sin, but he is not one who is a slave of sin any longer. We have been set free from it. When asked what is a Christian, we can truthfully answer it is someone who is a slave of sin but isn't anymore. When a believer says that they can't stop sinning, that they don't have the ability to control themselves, what Paul is saying here is that that cannot be the case. The Bible doesn't teach that a believer can be enslaved to sin, they, that they can still live a life walking in the sins that they committed before. They were slaves to it, but they are not slaves any longer. Having been slaves to sin, we became something else. What does he say? He says, you became obedient from the heart. It began when you were saved. You believed in Christ and gave your life to him, submitting to him as your master. At salvation, you became not only alive, but obedient. It changed the way in which you live. Take note here what this is saying. Paul uses the phrase, became obedient, to be synonymous with salvation. They are one and the same. You didn't just become saved, you became obedient. 
It seems like we don't hear about it much anymore, but several years ago, there was the great debate you would hear all the time about Lordship Salvation, right? You'd hear the phrase Lordship Salvation, and I don't know that there's a lot of talk about that much anymore. When we are saved, do we also submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord? Yes, we do. That's really what Paul is talking about here. I'd like to think the fact that we don't hear about that debate much anymore means that it's been settled. But the reality is, I think people just aren't talking about it anymore because they've all settled back into their own lanes. But it still needs to be talked about. Justification, believing in the saving work of Christ, is all about becoming obedient. Again, that's why he's talking about us becoming slaves of what? Of obedience. Do you think that Paul has anything else in mind here besides a person living a sanctified life? A person not only believes but gives their life over to Christ. There is no salvation without submission. As a believer, the character of your heart is to be obedient. It has been changed. You now live a new life. We've talked about the heart several times in our study. It's out of the heart that our actions come, that reveal who we really are. We saw back in chapter 2 when he was talking about the Jews at the end of the chapter. He said that a true Jew was one who has been circumcised of the heart. It was a matter of the heart. This obedience comes from a new heart that has been transformed within us. Made alive, we are now able to respond to God in obedience. Now, you know the last phrase in the verse, verse 17, to that form of teaching to which you were committed, that form of teaching, this is a pattern or a mold of teaching or doctrine, this would be the solid truth of the gospel, what you believed that saved you. It's not just any message. It's not anything that I want to believe. It's not any of that Well, you have your truth and I have my truth garbage. And that that is garbage, by the way. This is the truth of the gospel that he's talking about here, to which you were committed. This is being delivered over to something. Now, understand this phrase, because this is one of those phrases that you can think of it two different ways in your mind. It's an important one here. This does not mean to which I was committed. Okay, this means that I committed myself or that I gave hearty agreement to something. No. That's, we do give hearty agreement to it, but that's not what Paul's saying here. This is you being committed by someone else to something. This is, goes back to the slavery discussion that he's using here. The slave was set free and delivered over to a new master. Through the sovereign work of God, through the teaching of his gospel. It again goes back to the very beginning of the verse. This is why we're thanking God. Thanks be to God that through the clear teaching of the word, we have been delivered over from a life of slavery to sin to a life of obedience that stems from our transformed heart. We've been transferred from one area of slavery over to another area of slavery. So we were committed from one to the other. And that's what we see when we look at verse 18. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. There's no neutrality when it comes to sin and righteousness. You are either one or the other. Freedom, as we often think of it, doesn't apply here. 
when I say that? How do we think of freedom? How do most people think of freedom? We think of freedom as being able to do whatever you want, right? When we think of freedom, that's kind of what we're talking about. I want to buy a car. I want to travel here or there. I want to say this or that. I can say or do whatever I want, right? That's how we often think of freedom. For many people, they even take it further, right? They take it as the ability to be able to self-destruct if they want to, wanting to indulge in any pleasure, any lust, anything that they can think of and just live their life in in any way that they can. But you know, that isn't real freedom. True freedom is the ability to function in the way and relationship for which you were created. That's what true freedom is. For example, you look at a fish in the ocean, right? You take a look at a shark. Sometimes they have those, those trackers on sharks, and you can go to a website, and you can see how they travel through the ocean, just everywhere that they go. They do that with sharks. They do that with whales. I know a whale's not a fish, but it's in the ocean, right? So the same, same kind of deal. But they can swim around for thousands of miles over their lifetime, and they migrate in different seasons and things like that, right? And you look at them and you say, okay, that, that fish is free. It can swim anywhere in the ocean that it wants to. But, you know, then I might go home or I might go to somebody's house and I see a goldfish in a bowl. And I remember when I had a goldfish or my brother had a goldfish for years, the same one for years, just a little teeny tiny bowl. And I remember thinking to myself, that fish must be going crazy. Just in that little tiny bowl, nothing to do, just swims around in there. But you might look at that fish and you think, oh, that little guy, he's not free. He's just in this little tiny bowl. He's not free. And so I say, I'm going to free him. And I take that bowl and I drive in my car out and I'm not close to the ocean, right? So I go out to a meadow, big open field. Oh, this is a beautiful spot. You know, I can see trees and, and pretty flowers and everything all over the place. And I think I take him out of the bowl and I take it and scoop him out and I throw him into the meadow and I say, be free. Have I freed him? I haven't freed him. I just killed him right? That's what I did. Why? Because he wasn't created to function in the middle of a wide open, beautiful meadow. In the same way, you can say, you know, I take a lion out of the zoo. I don't like lions being in the zoo. So I see the sharks. I see how they can, how they can swim anywhere they want to. So I take that lion and I airdrop him into the middle of the Pacific. Have I freed him? Nope. He's dead too. Right? I just drowned him. Mankind was created to serve and worship the one true God. In our sin, we were free, quote-unquote, free from that function in the same way that that little fish is lying on the ground in the meadow. He's flopping around, doing stuff, trying to survive, but he's not going to make it. Being saved... We've been given the freedom to function as God intended us to function. And he created us to function in a personal relationship with him. We were freed from sin. We became slaves of righteousness. Christians today want to know how they can be free from sin. But you know what? Paul is telling us that's not what we need. Why? Because we have that. If they are saved, if we are saved, then we are free from it. They've been made a slave of righteousness. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we don't fall into sin from time to time, right? We still live 
we still in these bodies of flesh. We still struggle in these bodies of flesh. We talked that a little talked about that a little bit last time. They still have that corruption. But you know what? This body just does what I tell it to do. What it does, how I use it, comes from the heart, comes from within. The heart has been made new. The heart has been freed. Therefore, I am free, and now how I use my body is now a matter of me functioning within that freedom. If I sin, then I go back up to verse 16. I am presenting my body to the wrong master. Back up to verse 13. I am presenting my body as an instrument of unrighteousness. But make no mistake, that is a conscious decision on my part. One that I do not have to make as one who has been freed from the power of sin. There is no such thing as a Christian who lives a life of sin. Definition of a Christian is someone who has been freed from the sin and enslavement of sin and has been enslaved to righteousness. This defines a Christian. If I told you that it's possible for a Christian to exist who has never had their sins forgiven or a Christian who has never believed in Jesus Christ, you'd say, hopefully you'd say, well, I can't be. By definition, a Christian has had their sins forgiven. They have believed in Christ. The Bible is very clear on that. Well, you'd be right to say that. Well, the Bible also clearly says that a Christian has been freed from sin, been enslaved to righteousness. That's what we're seeing right here. That's what Paul is saying. Why is this so hard for us to grasp? Sometimes we struggle with this. I don't know, maybe somebody here is struggling with this. Because we still struggle with our sin. Our experiences sometimes tell us differently. If we are free from sin and we still sin, who's to blame for that? We are, right here. It's much easier to think that we have no choice, that we are being controlled. Why is that easier? Because then we have an excuse. Then we can say, it's not me but it's the sin in me. And we'll get to that argument when we get into the next chapter. Well, sorry, but that's not exactly how it works. We have no excuse. Sin has no control over us. The devil has no ex- control over us. The Christian can never say, the devil made me do it. The devil has no power over you. So we don't have that excuse. So then we sometimes go the other way. And we say, well, why does God let me do these things? Why doesn't he stop me? Again, we make that argument, what are we doing? Same thing. We're deflecting the blame. We have the freedom to choose righteousness now, something that we didn't have before. We weren't free to do that before. Sometimes we don't choose it. Sometimes we still do choose to sin. But it's never okay. When we choose righteousness, it's because we are walking in the Spirit and we follow where He leads us. When we sin, we are going off the path. We are going outside of what is normal for us now. We are choosing not to follow where the Spirit leads. Where does the blame for sin lie? Right here, solely on us. That is a truth. That is fact. That is what Paul has been saying in this entire chapter. You are free from sin. This is what Paul said in verse 11, that we are to consider, that we are to recognize as true in our lives as we consider how we are to live. A believer serves a different master. You can tell who a person is, by what master he serves. A slave of sin is characterized by sin. A slave of righteousness is characterized by righteousness. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 7. We'll 
close with looking at this. Matthew chapter 7, we see the same concept here. Jesus says this on the Sermon on the Mount. If you look down, verse 13, we'll start in verse 13 of Matthew 7. It's a familiar passage. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And here's Jesus, he's talking about what? Those who are saved and those who aren't, right? He's talking about those who are saved, those who find life, are on the narrow road. But the unsaved, those are on the broad road. There's going to be far more people that find destruction than find salvation. At one point, we were all on that broad road until God committed us to the doctrine of the gospel. But note, he talks then about false teachers. They look like sheep, right? They deceive, he says. But inwardly, they're what? They're wolves, ravenous wolves. How do we know who they truly are? If they look like sheep, they look like us, how do we know what they truly are? Look at verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every tree bears Every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruits is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Fruits is what they do. It's what's true of their life. I'm not good with trees. I'm not good with plants, that sort of thing. I have one tree in my yard. I had two. One fell down. So now I have one. One of the best things that ever happened to me, I think it was, I'm sure it was God's sovereignty because it came, an object lesson came out of this, um, and I've used it many times. So maybe you've been, I've even told you this before, I don't know. But when we lived in Colorado, back, back there, the very first year that we were there, we moved in in June. In May, there was a late freeze. Uh, it snowed like a week before we moved in. Um, Anyway, there was this late storm. Well, I have all, I had, we had all these trees in our yard, and I didn't know what kind of trees they were. I'm not a tree guy, so I don't know what trees they were. Um, so I went through the whole summer not knowing what trees I had, not really caring either. I just knew I had trees. They looked pretty. The next summer, a year after we'd moved in, I was out in the yard, and I had, was looking at one of my trees, and it's like, something on those branches. What's on there? I don't know. It was weird. And I looked, and a couple of trees had these, had these same things on them. Over the course of a few weeks, they started looking like apples. I had apples growing on my trees. I didn't have them the year before, but I had them this year. I found out what? I had apple trees. That was my first clue that I had apple trees in my yard. The freeze had killed the apples the year before, so I didn't know that. So I was smart enough to see the apples and say, that's an apple tree. I could recognize that tree by what? The fruit that was on the tree. That's what Jesus is saying here. The trees are evident by their fruits, just like people are evident by their fruit. Their conduct, their character. A pear tree can't produce an apple, right? I look at that apple tree and somebody tells me that's a pear tree. No, no, it's not. I can tell that because it's growing apples. An unbeliever cannot produce a good work. 
A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. A believer cannot be characterized by a sinful life. An unbeliever can't be characterized by good works. And when we say good works, it's dependent upon how God views them, right? Not necessarily how we view them. You can go up to somebody who's a a Buddhist, right? And he might live a wonderful life. He might be like the nicest guy you've ever met in your life, and he might do things just like, you know, how nice he is to people even puts me to shame. But, you know, we've talked before about how man has a form of his own righteousness, but it's not God's righteousness. His own righteousness to God is is like a filthy rag. An unbeliever can't truly produce good fruit, but also a believer, one whose life has been given over to God, committed to him, raised to new life with him, cannot produce bad fruit. Is there a bad apple that's on the tree every once in a while? Sure. But it's not pears. It's not completely dead, right? If it's completely dead, then you know it's no longer an apple tree anymore. Every once in a while, a bad apple might show up. But for the most part, it's apples, and it's good apples. The idea is clear. Do you know what we're seeing here in Matthew 7? We're seeing the illustration of what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 6. Or maybe even a better way to say it is that Paul in Romans 6 is explaining the theology behind the illustration that Jesus is using in Matthew chapter 7. When he talks about the good tree being unable to produce bad fruit, the tree that produces bad fruit is what? It's a bad tree. The person who shows a life of sin is what? He's a sinner. A slave of sin. And that's what you were. But you have been freed from sin and became slaves to righteousness if you have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we ask the question, is it okay for me to sin on occasion? I said we do. Right? We do sin on occasion. But is that okay? Do we just look at those sins and say, eh, covered by grace, no big deal. That's not our attitude. Is it okay for someone who has, someone whom God has taken from being a slave to sin, taken out from under the penalty of death, who has been transformed through the gospel to be a slave of righteousness, to be obedient in everything that he does, having had his heart transformed to steer him to live a new way? Is it okay for that person to make allowances for sin in their life? What do you think the answer to that is? May it never be. Absolutely not. Sin is not something that we as believers should be putting anywhere close to us. It's it's something that we should be putting as far away from us as possible. It's not to be dabbled in. It's not to be accepted or excused. We have been freed from it, and we need to live that way. Live as if we have no part in it, because we don't have any part in it any longer. What is your life characterized by? Are you living a life of sin, or are you living a life of obedience, living a righteous life, a sanctified life? Let's close in prayer.